Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what to make of the CDC's new testing guidelines released this week that say asymptomatic people who've been exposed to the virus don't necessarily need to get tested. It's a big change with a confusing explanation that's leading some to worry the CDC made the revision under pressure from the White House to drive down case numbers. We get the latest on testing. Then the music that's getting you through 2020. What's a song that's easing the anxiety or sadness of these stressful times? Or a track that always gets you moving or lifts your spirits? We want to know for a special series we're launching. Join us on Forum after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Governor Gavin Newsom said California won't be following the CDC's new testing guidelines as he unveiled state plans to increase testing with faster turnarounds. The new rules from the CDC say people who've been exposed to the coronavirus but don't have symptoms need not get tested. The change confused some health experts since asymptomatic people can spread the virus. And when the CDC's director tried to clarify the new rules, it led to more confusion. So here to help us make sense of the testing protocols and the latest on new testing developments is Dr. Celine Gounder, epidemiologist, internist, and host of the podcasts American Diagnosis and Epidemic, which is about COVID-19. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Gounder. Oh, it's my pleasure. So the old guideline said people who had been in close contact with someone with the coronavirus should get tested. These new guidelines say that people who've been in close contact, meaning within six feet of an infected person for at least 15 minutes, that they do not necessarily need a test. Does that make sense to you? Nina, I think sadly, this is a very politically motivated change in guidelines. And this past week, frankly, has been one of the darkest in the history of American public health. First, you had the FDA that had pressure um, to issue an emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma without adequate data to do so. And now you have the CDC that made changes in its recommendations on coronavirus testing that are really not at all scientifically based. And in a, at a time when we need to be doing much more testing, they are now recommending less testing. So you don't buy the federal government's rationale that these guidelines match the ones for, for hospital workers, for example, or that because tests only capture a single point in time, the results could give people a false sense of security, I think were along the lines of some of the things that they were saying was the reason they did it. I think that sort of retrospective trying to rationalize and justify guidelines that 
um, we're really not driven by by logic. And the hospital setting, I work in a hospital, is a very different situation where I am wearing an N95 mask and a face shield, and we try to put as many of our patients who are known to have COVID as possible in negative pressure rooms. That's a very different setting from what we're talking about with somebody in the general public who has a known contact exposure um, and then saying, well, if you don't have symptoms, you don't need to be tested. That makes no sense at all. At a hearing called by Democrats, the CDC director, Robert Redfield, tried to clarify the new rules, saying, quote, now testing may be considered. Do you think that that, well, did that clarify it for you? Do you think that that, in fact, reverses or gives, you know, people like you more assurance that people won't interpret these rules as meaning I've been exposed, I know I've been exposed, but I don't need to get a test? I think it just further confuses people about what they're supposed to do. And so much of the problem with this pandemic, at least in, in this country, has been the confusing messaging from day one about, do you need to do something? Do you not need to do something? Does it work or not? That has been so confusing. And another piece of that is that we don't have national level guidance. And so essentially what's happened when they say may is you're delegating that responsibility to state and local health officials and, and physicians like me working on the front lines as well. And, and you're going to get a hodgepodge of responses as a result. Um, and, and that's really not helpful when you're trying to control something on a population level. That's not a, that, that's not a public health response at that point. Well, here is Santa Clara's public health director, Sarah Cody, who basically has decided that she will interpret or basically not follow these CDC guidelines and does not want people in her region to do so as well. Here she is. The truth is that if you've been in contact with someone who is infectious with COVID, you absolutely need to get a test. So is that, Dr. Gonder, what you as well would recommend, despite the changes to the CDC's guidelines? Yeah, I 100% agree with Dr. Cody. And, and that should be what the national guidance should have been and should remain, um, that if you have been in contact with somebody who is known to have had covid um, if you have had any other high risk exposures, for example, travel to an area where there's a lot of transmission. And frankly, the direction in which we should be moving is frequent testing for everybody, regardless of exposure, regardless of symptoms, because ultimately that is what will allow us, especially with an infection that has that is so often without symptoms, that is that kind of testing is what would allow us to reopen the economy, to reopen schools safely, because that's what would allow us to separate people who are infectious from people who are not infected. We're talking with Dr. Celine Gounder, epidemiologist, internist, and host of the podcast, American Diagnosis, an epidemic about COVID-19. And you, our listeners, what questions do you have about the new CDC guidelines uh, and whether or not this clarifies things for you? Now's the time to call Dr. Gounder. 866-733-6786 is the number to call to get your question to her. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So there have been a couple of announcements related to testing that have come out actually by the federal government as well as by California. I want to first ask you about the federal government's announcement about uh, their their agreement with Abbott Labs and this new rapid antigen test um, that they have partnered with them to distribute. Uh, I guess they're going to purchase 150 million of these rapid tests and uh, distribute them across the country. 
your reaction to that? Is that a, an effective answer to the testing woes that we've experienced over the last six months? Well, I, I am encouraged to see another testing platform approved. Um, one major limitation with this test remains that it, it needs to be performed by a healthcare worker. Um, so, for example, you know, one of the places it's been and it's been touted as being useful would be in the school setting. Well, you can't do it in a school if you don't have a school nurse, and that's actually a huge problem because only about um, well, about forty percent of schools only have a part-time nurse and about a quarter of schools, public schools, have no nurse at all. So you're talking about well over 60, 65% of schools have no real capacity to be doing testing of their students on a frequent basis. So yes, it's great to have this new test, but you know, you need, there are other things you need, like people, to perform the test, and those people are in shortage. Can you also talk about how this test is different from the PCR tests that we've been relying on? Yes, so this is what we call an antigen test. So what you're doing is you're testing for the proteins of the virus, not the genetic material of the virus. And so these tests tend to be a lot cheaper, um, more rapidly done. They're lower technology, basically. Um, but what would be truly revolutionary would be something like this that could be done by you and me at home by a non-healthcare professional where you could be doing it really at scale, where everybody could be getting themselves tested every day or couple days. Um, that's what would be truly revolutionary. And there are some of those tests out there. They just haven't been approved for that kind of use by the FDA yet. Dr. Fyodor Urnov wrote, the first and only question relevant to the new Abbott test or any other test is when can thousands of these tests be made available to safety net community clinics and city public health departments? The bottleneck is not a lab or test that will be fast and scalable to 100 million. The bottleneck is who will deploy that where the need is greatest and who will pay for that. Do you agree? And, and I do wonder about this distribution. Well, and, and going back to the school nurse issue, that's precisely my concern is, you know, when you have disparities with respect to staffing and those kinds of capacity, um, you are going to have a reinforcement of those disparities, even with this new test, because you need the people and the other things to be able to perform the test. It's not just about getting your hands on it. Um, and, and even then, I do have concerns about how these tests are going to be distributed by the federal government. Um, health equity has not been at the center of their response. Well, so I want to ask you about California's effort as well to increase testing. They, Governor Gavin Newsom announced a new deal this week with a diagnostics company, Perkin Elmer in Massachusetts, I believe, that he says will add 150,000 more tests a day with results back in 24 to 48 hours. It will require the state to set up a new lab, but you know it should be up and running, they're saying, by November, and uh, then they can start increasing testing. How much of a dent do you think this is going to make? I mean, do you do you feel like this is an effective way to help California get to the point where it can, you know, reopen schools and, and reopen businesses? Well, certainly, I, I think anything that can reduce uh, turn, uh, test turnaround times from, say, an average of a week right now in California to one to two days would be 
hugely helpful um, because what you really want to do is make a diagnosis of infection early enough that somebody can take action, meaningful action, so that they don't transmit the disease onwards. If you're having to wait seven days, um, you know, you've basically already completed half of a quarantine period and, and a lot of people are not going to be willing to take themselves out of work uh, or school for those seven days while they wait. And so at that point, the test becomes useless. So we're getting actually quite a few questions right now about the CDC guidelines. Scott tweets, the new CDC guidelines went in the very moment that Dr. Fauci was put under anesthesia. Does this guest have any comment? And then David writes, this change is obviously counter to sound medical advice. Who at the CDC is responsible for succumbing to political pressure? I'd like to see them fired once Trump is out. Do you have any insight on this? Um, I mean, Dr. Fauci said that he reviewed an early version, but that, you know, he didn't necessarily see the final uh, change that was made to the CDC website, which was also bizarre because that's not the typical way you you announce a change. You usually do it through press release. Well, and, and that's right. Um, and we do know for a fact that the CDC did change its guidelines under political pressure. We do know for a fact that these decisions were made while Dr. Fauci was out for surgery. Um, and frankly, Dr. Fauci and, and Francis Collins, the dire uh, director of the NIH, um, have both been very concerned about the data um, for these changes and recommendations. Um, and I think are among perhaps the most um, outspoken um, as these things go in, in terms of um, restating what the science is. Um, I think, unfortunately, many of the professionals at the CDC and, and elsewhere in the government are concerned about losing their jobs if they stand up for what's right. And they feel like they need to um, continue advocating for the right thing within the system. We're talking with Celine Gounder about the latest developments in coronavirus testing, the CDC's latest guidelines on who gets tested, and the latest testing at FDA approval. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest on testing developments in the state of California from the federal government and also confusion around new CDC testing guidelines posted this week. We're talking with Celine Gounder, an epidemiologist and internist, and we're talking with you, our listeners. The number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let me go to David in Los Gattis. Hi, David. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, even uh, Dr. Uh, San, uh, Dr. Gander, even before the CDC guidelines release, uh, we were struggling with an employer. It's a national employer. My wife works. And they've been basically uh, been really reckless in terms of social distancing, implementing social distancing at the store, at their store in San Mateo County. And they're refusing to test, uh, test uh, the employees who have been working very closely with infected individuals and they're basically downplaying the uh, effect of it they're saying there's no test required even though you were working with that person like you know six hours ago uh so i'm i'm terrified that the new cdc guidelines is going to give cover for these kind of employers and pr even like i said even prior to this we couldn't get help i personally wrote to the San Mateo director of health got nothing 
and trying to figure out what can we do to basically help uh, employers like my wife who are basically risking their lives just to go to work. David, thanks. Uh, Dr. Gondra, I mean, I think this has been a, an issue that, that has been raised around this in terms of cover and also concern that it will, it will basically encourage less testing. Well, and it gives people permission to behave in ways that are frankly risky in terms of public health. Um, I, I just don't think it's reasonable to expect businesses, to expect employers to self-police. Their number one priority is to make money, to keep jobs going if they can, um, but their their number one priority is not necessarily the public health. And in the absence of regulations and enforcement, um, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to expect every employer to do the right thing. The other worry that has been out there, and I wonder if you share this, is that, I don't know if this would be the case in California, but that insurance um, Insurance plans will not feel as much pressure to have to cover these tests, the costs of these tests, or make them free for people. Yeah, that's right. Um, so if the guidelines do not universally recommend testing in these situations, for example, having had a known contact, then an insurance company can say, well, that is not guideline standard of care. And so therefore, we do not need to reimburse this testing. Um, so, you know, again, I think we need national guidance um, and scientifically grounded guidance. And that is not what we're getting from the CDC now. I mean, what damage does this do to the CDC? I mean, they're supposed to be the last word on public health, a really reliable word on public health. Well, it's the CDC. It's also the FDA this week. Uh, these are institutions that are supposed to be uh, functioning apolitically in the public's interest on the basis of science. And that is not what we're getting now. And, and I think this is going to cause irreparable harm to the uh, culture and reputation of these institutions. Are, are you talking about the FDA's decision to grant an emergency uh, use authorization for blood plasma to treat COVID-19 patients? Yes, that's right. That's right. And we simply do not have the data. So uh, randomized placebo-controlled trials that would indicate that that treatment, the convalescent plasma, is effective and safe in this setting. We really need that data. And essentially what they've done is they've created an off-ramp for people to get access to the convalescent plasma outside of clinical trials, which means people won't enroll in the trials now. And so we'll, we may never get that data. Well, and speaking of the, uh, the federal government's um, developments, Gregory asked, what's the sensitivity of this newly approved test and what are the percent error rates of all tests being used? These are the Abbott tests, I assume. Right. So the new Abbott test, the antigen rapid test, um, and this is based on a very small sample size. So basically about 100 people, which is tiny. Um, so it's very preliminary data, but the sensitivity on the basis of that 100 people is 97% and the specificity is just over 98%. So on the basis of a small sample size, those numbers look good. Well, Daphne writes, President Trump and those near him get frequent COVID-19 tests, whether they show symptoms or not. Frequent testing for all should be our national goal so the U.S. can get back to business. So a couple of things off of that. First of all, um, it, it's a little odd to me that they would not want more testing, or maybe they would because they're doing this Abbott thing, but that because, I mean, the the real issue is not so much how many 
tests you're taking, but but the positivity rate, right? And the more tests you take, I would assume that that would help improve positivity rates if there aren't a lot of people who have the coronavirus infection. So, I mean, why would they want less testing? Or maybe they're just banking that most Americans don't really pay attention to the positivity rate or pay more attention to case numbers. Well, and I think the positivity rate is a little bit hard for some people to, to understand why would that be what we focus on? Well, if you're casting your net um, too narrowly, not widely enough, your positivity rate is going to be very high. As you cast your net wider and wider to capture people who have no symptoms, for example, um, then you're going to have a lower positivity rate. But that's a good sign because it means you're actually doing a better job of capturing everybody you want to capture. Um, I, I do think, unfortunately, this is very much about trying to drive down the number of cases reported, not necessarily what's truly happening, um, but to make it seem like things are getting better, um, to make it seem like we don't have nearly the number of cases we have. Um, and you're never going to be able to control spread of the virus when you don't even know who has it and who doesn't. Right. So, And that's the marker that a lot of state officials are, are looking at to determine what to reopen when. So you said definitely want a lot of testing so that you have a more accurate positivity rate. Anyway, once again, just one of those those places where it's a it's a head scratcher, uh, or maybe not if, if, you, <laughs> if you have a cynical view um, of the administration. The, the other part of this related to Daphne's question is, can you just talk about how critical testing is to getting back to our lives? Can you just connect those dots, frequent testing? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's so interesting to me. You have one standard of care for people living and working in the White House, which is not what the rest of us have access to. And that is the standard of care that should be offered to all of the American people, which is frequent, rapid testing. And there are some um, tests in development. Um, they're slightly less sensitive than the tests we have currently approved by the FDA or with emergency authorizations from the FDA. But the idea is if you had something like a paper test strip, you could do at home on your own and test yourself every day or every two to three days, you would be able to figure out for yourself, okay, am I infectious? Um, should I be going to school or work today? And if we had that level of testing for everybody in the country, which is what many of us are advocating for, and essentially is what the White House is doing for its, itself, um, that would allow us to safely reopen schools and the economy. So we need a lot more testing, not less. Right. And, and this listener writes, less testing means fewer known cases, which means Trump gets to tout better numbers. It's pure politics. More people will contract COVID and die. Trump is killing thousands, according to this listener. Uh, Michael tweets, a big issue is test turnaround time. Does this reflect a shortage of lab personnel, test equipment, reagents, or what? And another listener related to turnaround time writes, why is everyone focusing on more testing? Instead of more testing, the focus should be on getting the results back sooner. More tests will only slow down the results right? So th these are some interesting questions. I mean, I think these listeners are absolutely right that one of the biggest failures has been, and we've done, a, we did a show about this, was just, you know, sometimes in California, tests were taking like 14 to 16 days to get their results back. Things have improved a little bit to about a week, maybe on average or less, but still that's a long time to ask people not to do anything while they're waiting for testing results. And as you mentioned, you know, you've already gone, gone through half your quarantine period anyway, but can you address these listener questions about, you know, what's what's the backlog or what's the holdup, right, in terms of testing results and, you know, whether or not, and this worry that more testing will lead to more backlog again, because we've just been 
so bad at this. Yeah. I mean, it's a combination of things, right? It's the manpower, it's the reagents, it's the machines, it's the, you know, how many specimens can it, a lab as a result of all of those rate limiting steps um, handle per day. And the way the PCR tests, so those are the tests for the genetic material of the virus, which are really by and large how we're doing the testing, of, we've been doing testing up until now. Um, those tests, while the machines can run those samples very quickly, um, it's all of the things leading up to, you know, in terms of the collection of the specimen and so on. And another problem is these machines are are not um, multi, they don't work across platforms. So it's sort of like you buy yourself an, an espresso machine and a Keurig machine and you have the K-cups, but you don't have them to fit into the Nespresso machine. So, you know, you know, that's part of the problem we have too. And so you're basically having to run supply chains for every single test platform in every lab. And that becomes a very complicated logistical problem. Are you optimistic that, you know, this new effort by California to get to build up its own lab and have this deal uh, with Perkin Elmer, these more attention starting to be paid to these paper strip tests that you're talking about, the Abbott tests, that all of these different testing opportunities will alt will bring down <laughs> will bring down the wait time, you know, in a relatively timely manner. I, I certainly hope so. And I, I do think the contract that California just signed with Perkin Elmer will certainly help the state. Um, California, despite having some pretty um, rigorous science-based guidelines and, and public health approaches to things, is suffering um, relative to, say, New York, where I am, a much higher rate of transmission right now. And I do think that um, it's not a choice, I think it's important to emphasize, between reducing turnaround time and scaling up numbers and frequency of testing. We, we'd actually need to do both. Um, but I do think that these are very positive steps in the right direction uh, for California. Well, Mary, join us. Mary in Santa Rosa. I am one of those people that um, has been exposed to the virus and can't get tested. And I live in California. You cannot get tested? You've had difficulty getting tested? They, they told me to wait two more days because I don't have any symptoms. Hmm. They is your doctor or? Yes. I called my doctor this morning. I just hmm. found out yesterday. So, um, Mary, thanks. I saw my sister a week ago. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. That's, I'm sure that's stressful. I mean, Dr. Gounder, do you have any advice for Mary? Yeah, I think what I would suggest is reach out to your local public health department and find out what the nearest testing site is for you. Uh, this is really not the purview of the average primary care general practitioner. Um, in New York, for example, your best bet is if you go to one of the public hospital testing sites and they are getting test results within 24 hours for most people. So, you know, even, even places like CityMD and, and some of those urgent care facilities are taking much, much longer. So go to the people who specialize in this, the people who know how to get it done. And so that's, that's going to be your public health departments and their sites. Well, Tom writes, do the new tests have high rates of false positives or negatives? And how should we adjust our testing procedures to deal with the possibility that a test may return an erroneous result? 
Well, that's going to be the case with any test. Um, with the new antigen test, um, you are going to have both false positives and false negatives. And, and this is where it really does need to be, as with any test, interpret it in the context of exposures and symptoms. Um, but I think given that our number one priority right now is to try to reduce transmission in the community, uh, I would consider a positive on any such test a true positive and would behave accordingly in terms of quarantining that person. And even the tests, say like the paper strip tests or the EBA tests that they're considered less effective, less sensitive and maybe less accurate. What I feel like I'm hearing right now is that still less accurate, but cheaper, more frequent testing is better than the perfect test. Would you agree? Yes, 100%. Um, and what we're seeing is the people who are false, um, a false negative. So people that are not picked up by whether it's the new um, Abbott antigen test or some of the paper strip antigen tests that have not yet been approved, the people they miss are people who are less infectious or out, out beyond their infectious window. So if you're really using the test from a public health perspective to say, okay, you're safe to go back to work or to school or not, that's okay if we miss those people because they're not gonna be the ones transmitting. What we really wanna do is capture the people who transmit. Let me go to Bob in San Francisco. Hi, Bob. Uh, thank you. Am I on? Yes, you are. Go right ahead. Okay. Yeah, uh, I want to let everybody know, if you want a really quick test for COVID, go donate blood because they've got to test you before they take your blood. I see. And, and you went to a blood donation place in the Bay Area. Yes. Uh, yeah. Somebody gave me a heads up from New York about that. And so I went and I tried it and it worked great. How fast was the turnaround? Uh, it was two days, but okay. it, that was two days. It was two days because I didn't check in in time. Uh, thanks, Bob, for that. I mean, this listener writes, is this change in policy just a reflection of how things actually work on the ground? I know it's anecdotal, but we had COVID exposure at work in July. Every single person was told by their doctors that they could not have a COVID test unless they had symptoms. I mean, the guidance, say, from the CDC to how states and public health officials, local public health officials use it, it it's not like a directive, right, Dr. Gounder? Yeah, that's right. So the CDC is not um, an agency that can enforce its guidelines. It's providing the best available guidance in theory up until recently it did uh, based on the available science. And then enforcement really comes at a more state and local level to the degree that those jurisdictions choose to enforce. Well, let me see if I can squeeze Sam from Redwood City in here. Hi, Sam. Hi, I'm wondering if there have been any shifts in guidelines due to the California wildfires um, and the air quality and people being evacuated in large numbers and being together. Um, you mean related to if that's affecting COVID or coronavirus? Yeah, what are they expecting in possible surge or um, if they need uh, to reevaluate opening guidelines? Hmm, I'm not sure. Dr. Gounder, do you have any insight? Great question. There haven't been changes in guidelines per se, but whether it's the wildfires in California or Hurricane Laura, anything that um, causes people to crowd together indoors is going to increase transmission. And anything that worsens air quality um, could certainly, especially over time, um, put people at higher risk. We, we know, for example, teenagers who vape have higher uh, rates of severe disease from COVID than those who don't. So certainly those are things to be concerned about. 
Well, Stephen writes, are there programs to randomly test populations around the country to accurately determine the current extent of the virus? And if not, why? We just have about a minute left. But yes, this is something that's been mentioned several times throughout this process as a way to try to do more testing. Yeah, and that's something we really need to be doing. We're not doing anywhere near the scale that should be done. It it is being done in very small study settings, but we're not doing that kind of surveillance. And you, you attribute just generally this testing issue to the fact that we've never really had a national testing sort of process from the very beginning. Just, I guess what I'd love to hear is if you're hopeful and kind of lay out what we face through the end of this year with regard to, to, to being able to control this, this virus based on testing? I think one major gap is that the FDA does not have a, an approach to um, certify or approve tests that are really for surveillance and for public health uh, purposes to, to pick up people who are infectious and who might transmit. Our, our systems are really based on making a diagnosis in a clinical setting, not for public health purposes. So that, that's what needs to change. Well, Dr. Gander, appreciate having you on today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Dr. Celine Gounder, epidemiologist, internist, and host of the podcasts American Diagnosis and Epidemic, which is about COVID-19. Thanks also to our listeners for their insightful questions and comments. And also thanks to Raquel Maria Dillon, who produced this segment. Coming up, we're going to go out listening to some music, the music that gets you through 2020. So stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.